This is DIA Connections. If you can imagine an airliner falling out of the sky every other day, that's about how many people die from fentanyl. For a lot of people who are addicted users, they hear someone else took it and overdosed, and they're like, wow, that must be really powerful stuff. I want to get some of that. We're looking at north of 40,000 deaths per year due to specifically synthetic opioids. This mission is something that affects the lives of Americans on a day-to-day basis. Those are some of the startling statements from our guests about the synthetic opioid fentanyl. This is DIA Connections. Thanks for joining us on this, our very first podcast. For those who are already familiar with the Defense Intelligence Agency, I'm glad you found us. And for those who aren't, let me bring you up to speed. If you don't know about the DIA, here's an overview, and I'm going to keep it brief. Created in 1961, the Defense Intelligence Agency is a Department of Defense and Intelligence Community Government Agency that collects and analyzes intelligence about the capabilities and intentions of foreign militaries and governments. And we give that intelligence to our military and our warfighters and to our policymakers so that they can make informed decisions. You can probably guess the kinds of things that we're interested in, like how many airplanes does Iran have? Or what are the nuclear intentions of North Korea? Or what alliances exist between what world leaders? But as we were researching ideas for this podcast and hearing suggestions for stories, sometimes we would even say to ourselves, what, we do that? Really? What does DIA have to do with the Doobie Brothers? And why would DIA care about opioids? What's the connection there? And then we thought, hmm, connections, DIA connections. Suddenly we realized we have a podcast, we have a show, we have a series. So welcome to our very first podcast in our new series, DIA Connections. Okay, so we're going to get into the connection the DIA has with the synthetic opioid called fentanyl. But first, let's get a little better understanding of opioids in general. We spoke with Dr. Walter Karoshitz. He's the director of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the National Institutes of Health. One of the main jobs of a physician is to try and relieve pain. And um, what's happened over the last couple of decades is there's been more cognizance to the fact that uh, we needed to ask people about their pain status. Almost pain became a vital sign. Unfortunately, this led to the crisis that we have now because the medications that are available, the really potent ones are opioids. Synthetic opioids, including fentanyl, are now the most common drugs involved in overdose deaths in the United States. In 2017, 60% of opioid-related deaths involved fentanyl. 60%. Now compare that number to 14% in 2010. Fentanyl production has proven to be an extremely creative and difficult process to stop. The Defense Intelligence Agency's Director of Artificial Intelligence for Future Capabilities and Innovations is Brian Drake. He leads the DIA mission in tracking the shadowy production and distribution networks. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Let's start with this. When did DIA become involved in tracking fentanyl and why? 
The Department of Defense has been involved in the drug war ever since the 70s. So DIA's role is supporting the foreign intelligence component of fighting that, that war. So when you think about partners we need abroad, so the Colombian government, Bolivian government, Afghanistan, we work with those governments and work with those intelligence elements to provide them information on how to counter the drug threat in their country. So DIA uh, factors into lots of different pieces of that. We help our own law enforcement partners, we help in-country partners, we help international organizations understand where drugs are coming from, how they are produced, how they get put into their uh, economies and into their citizens, and we supply intelligence products to inform strategic decision making across those lines. All right, so let's talk specifically about fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, so it's made mostly by a chemical compound. And because it is made synthetically, it can be uh, made anywhere. So in, unlike drugs like cocaine or poppy that makes actual heroin, uh, it's fairly easy to say, well, I know that's limited to this geography. I know how much that geography can generate. Uh, synthetic drugs, and uh, you can put methamphetamine in this category as well, they can be produced anywhere. And because they can be produced anywhere, that highly complicates the ability to interdict the drug. We were looking at opioids already, looking at heroin and, and so forth, um, but looking at fentanyl really came to our attention when it was declared a national health crisis by the president. Because then we started to get an appreciation for the priority relative to other policies that were being uh, laid down. Okay, you mentioned the president. When was this? Which president was this? Yeah, this is a Trump administration, so this is in 2017. And we did not have a lot of effort focused on it at the time because we considered it to be important, but we were being tasked to look at heroin, traditional organic drugs. So um, when we first entered into the challenge space, we identified that this was a rising trend and a lot of folks were, were passing away because of overdoses, so we decided to surge effort. Explain something to me. When did fentanyl become the drug of choice? I mean, there was a time when it was mostly cocaine. Why is it fentanyl now? We still have a problem with cocaine overdoses and normal heroin, all other drug types, we still have the same persistent problem. This is a little different in the sense that uh, pain management drugs were very, very popular in the early 90s, and that kind of uh, carried through into the early 2000s. And as those pain management drugs that you've heard of, oxycodone, um, things like that. Uh, those are all uh, opioid uh, derivatives. And uh, as those rose in popularity to treat pain, legitimate medicinal pain issues, they were a little over uh, liberally prescribed. And as they were liberally prescribed, we had more folks that got addicted to them, and as they got addicted to them, and their pain issues may have been uh, dealt with, or maybe their, the main issue, like back pain or something like that, was dealt with. Um, the industry started to curve down on prescribing as much and then filling the gap were the illegal opioids that came into play. Okay, let's go back a little bit. I want you to tell me about who uses fentanyl. So we know, we know people use it for pain management, but what about street and recreational use? In recent times, uh, the medical industry has been clamping down on the prescription of opioids. So uh, folks have been going to illegal providers, and sometimes they know that, sometimes they don't. Uh, we have a lot of counterfeit pills that show up that's it's stamped. It looks just like oxycodone. It looks exactly like it. And so if you're a regular consumer, you wouldn't necessarily know the difference. But it's probably not. It's probably counterfeit, and it probably just has a little bit of fentanyl in it just to give you the, the kick that it's supposed to have. 
we have other folks that know that they're using it recreationally and, and they are pursuing illegal means of getting it. So we know that exists as well. Um, then we have folks that are actually using other types of drugs like cocaine and some, uh, we call it the retail market, the drug dealers are the ones that are mixing fentanyl into some of what they are selling and completely unbeknownst to the users. And because of that, we have overdoses. So you might be a cocaine user who had some fentanyl mixed in the cocaine for whatever reason. That's just what the retail market decided to do. And you die from using cocaine, but you don't die from a cocaine overdose, you're dying from the fentanyl use. Let me ask you this, why is it so lethal? It's the chemical compound in the dosage that's given to you. So if you go to a doctor and you're prescribed a pain medication, that doctor is looking at you and says, okay, I'm gonna prescribe so many milligrams of a particular pain medication uh, because I know that suits your physiology, right? So we pay medical professionals a lot of money to make those choices so that you don't have further complications and overdose. Um, when people self-medicate, uh, they, don't, they don't know. If you can imagine taking a salt shaker off a table and then just shaking a little bit on, on your index finger, and whatever would collect there, that's probably enough. Uh, if those were fentanyl flakes and not salt, it's probably enough to kill you. That's really incredible. Such a small amount. I mean, how, how can you keep track of it? How can you possibly track it? It's very difficult. Um, so that was how this problem kind of came to us, is that we started to look at um, how hard is this? So methamphetamine is another synthetic example. Same problem can be produced anywhere. It has, it's an upper, not a downer. But um, you had to have a pretty sizable volume of it to, to, to distribute and get somebody high. Fentanyl, not as much. So it was the meth problem plus a very strong demand signal from the user base, plus very, very small shipments of it coming into the country. So we started to look back at the nature of where it's being produced, mostly in China. And we started to understand that that wholesale market, the actual chemical providers, we could get a better signal of how much they're producing, uh, where they're distributing that to, and who they are selling it to. And with that, we were able to better track the supply chain. We're going to hear more from Brian later. But first, we're going to hear from someone who actually infiltrated the production facilities in China. And China's the place which, by all accounts, seems to be the hub of fentanyl activities. Our next guest is author Ben Westhoff. In his latest book, he says, A whole new generation of chemicals is radically changing the recreational drug landscape. Ben is the first journalist to infiltrate a Chinese lab, which he chronicles in his book, Fentanyl, Inc., how rogue chemists are creating the deadliest wave of the opioid epidemic. We spoke with Westhoff, and the conversation began at what can be considered the tipping point of his quest. I had a friend who died from fentanyl in 2010, back before I or most people knew what it was. And, um, and then later on, I was uh, a journalist and editor in Los Angeles, and I was reporting about why so many people were dying at raves. There were these big electronic dance music parties and someone, if not multiple people, died at almost every one of them. And so I found that the, the deaths were blamed on ecstasy and molly, but um, I found out that the drugs people were dying from were actually adulterated and contained all these new 
these new synthetic drugs known as novel psychoactive substances, NPS. And I really went down the rabbit hole and learned about all these uh, new NPS from China. And fentanyl was the most dangerous and deadly of them. Ben then went on to describe the surprising, or maybe not so surprising, process of actually contacting fentanyl suppliers. I kept hearing that fentanyl and all these other new drugs were made in China, and so I just started Googling buy drugs in China, buy fentanyl in China, and I found all these web pages for these companies that were based all over China, and a lot of times they listed the name of the salespeople and it even had their their email address. So I just started emailing them. I made a fake email and pretended to be a drug dealer, asked them for information, for their prices. And and then when I sort of won over the confidences of some people, some salespeople, I started talking to them on Skype and telling them I wanted to come to China. And I, I also talked to some lab owners and they said they would be happy to show me their facilities. And so I made these contacts, I booked a flight to China, and I started meeting with these people. Working undercover, Westhoff gained entry into two synthetic drug operations and learned how China's chemical industry works. He even went so far as to document his encounters with a voice recorder that he had hidden in his jacket. Mr. Han just asked me whether you are a reporter. Whether, whether I'm a reporter? Yeah. Oh, no. It was very nerve-wracking. Um, I guess what I took a little bit of comfort in was the fact that these aren't cartels that are operating the synthetic drug trade in China. It's not like Colombia or Mexico. These are businessmen, and they want to make money. So they're not killing people. There aren't bodies in the streets. They don't have guns, even. They, they kind of look like basic science nerds. Most of these labs served Western customers. They were used to Americans and they spoke English. And I asked to see the facilities and they showed me around. There was one lab, it was outside of Shanghai. And I met the lab owner at a train station in Shanghai. And he spent the first half of the day vetting me and he took me to lunch and he wasn't sure if he could trust me. He kept asking if I was a journalist. But eventually I won him over and he agreed to show me his lab. We drove way out to the countryside and he took me to what looked like just a typical office park. There was um, a fountain out front and kind of a new construction building and he took me upstairs and showed me the labs. Okay, yeah, those are some giant tubes. Okay, so how, how long have you had the lab? How many years? They were making huge quantities of these different types of fentanyl, and it was a fairly small operation. There were only five or six employees, but the quantity of drugs they were making was huge, and they showed me all these baggies that they had ready to ship out in one kilo quantities, which is a huge amount. It was very kind of like a Breaking Bad sort of moment to see all this, all this industrial-sized glassware. I I left and I didn't place an order or anything. No money was exchanged, no drugs were exchanged, but it was very eye-opening to see the operation. One word of note. You'll soon hear Westhoff discuss his travels to Wuhan, China. This was before the coronavirus pandemic. It's this building 
It's a new, seems new, uh, fairly new. Yeah, you do. So how, do you have many people working here? No, only four. Only four. Only four. Chemists, yeah. I went to a place in a city called Wuhan, a big city in central China, and this was a company who sold more fentanyl precursors than anyone else in the world. And so a precursor is the most important chemical needed to make fentanyl. So the only reason to make this chemical is to, to sell this chemical is for people who want to make fentanyl. Yet this company was doing so flagrantly and openly and in out of this big uh, operation in, in the city of Wuhan. So I went in there, they pretended to be a customer and they showed me the whole operation. There were 700 people working for this company and I saw these vast sales floors of young sort of perky salespeople who were selling this stuff at their cubicles. These were recent college graduates who had um, who were just looking for a good job out of college and the place had you know decent pay and good benefits and so a lot of the people working there didn't even realize they were selling the chemicals for the world's most dangerous drugs. And so I got a chance to talk to a lot of them. And they, um, you know, at first I had a hard time believing they didn't know what fentanyl was. But but then I learned more that uh, fentanyl is not a big problem in China. It's it's not killing people there. And so it's not part of the, the conversation there. And so a lot of these employees um, just thought they were doing something legitimate. Not only are precursors the most essential part of the drug-making process, they are extremely difficult to obtain, and China has been supplying drug makers in Mexico with fentanyl precursors for over a decade. Can you be this kind of business or not? My friend. My friend is, does this kind of business. How about the quantity? How about the demand, do you mean? Maybe... Um, 10, 10 kilograms, 10 kilograms for some things. Yeah. To me, that's the biggest problem. It's not, it's not actually the fentanyl itself that's the biggest problem. It's the, the fentanyl precursors because they sell these by the boatload to the Mexican cartels. And the Mexican cartels don't have the uh, trained chemists to make fentanyl from scratch. And so they depend on China for these precursor ingredients, they, they receive them and they turn it into fen finished fentanyl. And that's the, the biggest problem right now. Westhoff's access and description of the labs, and in particular the precursor ingredients needed to create fentanyl, steers our conversation to another member of the DIA team tasked with tracking the deadly drug. Due to the nature of his work, we aren't going to reveal his name, which is not an unusual phenomenon here at DIA. We begin with an old school example to understand the importance of precursor chemicals. Without going into high school chemistry a little bit too much, uh, you can imagine precursor chemical as a Lego block. So if you have a set to produce fentanyl or methamphetamines or heroin, you need certain pieces to put everything together. So if you have all the blocks necessary to create fentanyl, you can create the drug. So we track these precursor chemicals as a means to potentially get ahead of drug production. He goes on to describe a mass data analytics effort called Sable Spear that they use to track fentanyl 
and they do so by using open sources. And by open sources, we mean information available to the public. So what can you tell us about an initiative called Sable Spear? Sable Spear is a unique and fairly innovative uh, program that we started up here at DIA, basically because a lot of the fentanyl sales that we see happen online, we decided to leverage an artificial intelligence solution towards looking at all this information on the aggregate. It is fairly difficult for an analyst to click through hundreds of websites to make linkages among many, many disparate email addresses, phone numbers, what have you. However, a computer can sort through that text very quickly. And not to say that this solution is necessarily a replacement, but so much so as an augmentation of what an analyst's skills can do. So looking at this aggregate data set, we can derive connections more easily. We can look at broader trends. And within those broader trends, we can say, this is an anomaly. This is where things are going. And from there, we can pull out more research. We can better inform our policymakers of what's happening in the now. And the artificial intelligence tools ultimately help us stay current and stay as up to the minute as we can to better inform our policymakers. In the case of this threat, time is Americans' lives. So the more up-to-date we can be, the faster we can be in our analysis, the better decision advantage we can provide to our policymakers and people who can affect change. Let's talk about some of the ways that fentanyl makes it into the U.S. So fentanyl makes its way to the United States in a variety of ways. Uh, one of the major challenges the U.S. government's faced is uh, fentanyl coming through the mail route. So a lot of fentanyl, when it's ordered online, tends to just go through normal shipping routes. The same way that your package from Amazon would get from the warehouse to your door is the same way that a lot of fentanyl makes way to the United States, just going through the mail. And because packages tend to be small, tend to have various concealment techniques, it's very difficult to necessarily pinpoint what is a drug shipment vice a illicit piece of mail. But fentanyl doesn't only come through the mail, but just comes through uh, our southern border with other drug types. Fentanyl tends to come in through legal points of entry. Um, this is quite important as uh, fentanyl along with other drugs, heroin, cocaine, are concealed in vehicles and just pass through our checkpoints. Again, this is a, a question of scale. There are a lot of vehicles that go through the border every day and these vehicles have a lot of concealment added to them. So sometimes it is very difficult, almost impossible to tell which vehicles are nefarious, vice, completely normal. Fentanyl has become a public health crisis with devastating consequences. After a short break, we'll pick up the trail of fentanyl once it reaches our shores. This is DIA Connections. Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, transnational terrorism. Do you know the threats? For more than 50 years, DIA officers have delivered defense intelligence expertise for our nation's leaders and warfighters. In the tradition of DIA's unclassified Soviet military power series, we bring you a new set of products that examines the greatest threats facing the U.S. today. Earlier this year, we released China Military Power. Now, Iran Military Power examines the core capabilities of Iran's military. 
Iran has expanded its capabilities and roles as both an unconventional and conventional threat in the Middle East. This report provides details on Iran's defense and military goals, strategy, plans, and intentions. Learn what DI's top intelligence experts have concluded about these complex threats and their potential impact on the United States and its allies. These assessments add an important viewpoint to the public conversation. Join us online. This is DIA Connections. This opioid crisis is not an issue that's happening someplace else or to someone else. It's happening right here in Norfolk. That's G. Zachary Terwilliger, U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. We're not talking about five and $600 deals. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, $20,000 in the trunk of somebody's car in a gym bag, um, you know, behind a local restaurant. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse alone in the United States is $78 billion a year. That includes the cost of health care, lost productivity, addiction treatment, and criminal justice involvement. In August of 2019, Zachary Twilliger's office executed a major drug bust that they called Operation Cookout. It received a lot of attention due to the catastrophic damage that could have been inflicted on the community. Investigators have busted a massive drug ring spanning three states. All this over just the last three days. Law enforcement officers in Virginia season. One of the reasons this particular takedown or arrest uh, generated so much attention, and one of the reasons we're talking about it now is, um, you know, we seized 24 firearms, 30 kilograms of heroin, five kilograms of cocaine, $700,000 in cash. But the real big number was the 30 kilograms of fentanyl, which is enough doses to kill approximately 14 million people. And that's that's the thing. It's you know, it's it's just like grains of rice uh, are, are strong enough and potent enough to kill an individual. Torbilliger went on to discuss the challenges of not only finding fentanyl, but the hazards of confiscating it. Fentanyl is just uh, every parent and law enforcement officer's worst nightmare. You have something that's incredibly uh, potent um, and in a substance that is just coming in in multiple ways. Fentanyl is one of those uh, pretty easily concealable substances. Um, unlike marijuana, where you're going to have bricks and bales of it, fentanyl can be secreted in a liquid form, um, it can be in a powder form, it can be pressed into pills that, that look authentic. Um, what we typically see is large amounts of fentanyl being shipped in its chemical form uh, from laboratories in China to uh, Mexico and then coming across the border, whether that's in drums, whether that's in pills. You know, they'll ship it in some innocuous substance, whether it's dog food, coffee, you know, toys. Um, and one of the things that makes it really, really hard is uh, it's it's such a dangerous substance. You don't want to open up those packages if you, su- if you suspect it of being fentanyl because then it can become airborne and, and potentially kill, you know, the officers or the inspectors looking at certain packages. So that's been a big issue is how do we interdict these particular packages? How do we, how do we 
do so in a manner that's safe? Um, and also, are we able to even field test for it to determine, is this just innocuous white powder or is it fentanyl? So those are all challenges um, that we face with the fentanyl that's shipped uh, through the mail. And because it's so potent, um, you can you can ship quite uh, quite a potent uh, amount and valuable amount, um, you know, in an eight and a half by 11, uh, you know, envelope. Despite law enforcement's best efforts of surveillance, confiscation, and arrests, the deadliest aspect is that the outcome is ultimately in the hands of the user. The biggest danger I think that we're seeing is you have fentanyl that's being combined with other illicit substances. So you've got, uh, maybe it's cocaine, and it's being combined with fentanyl. And so someone who's a cocaine user or an addict uh, will use that fentanyl or use that, excuse me, use that amount of cocaine and all of a sudden they use a higher dose so they use the same amount of cocaine that they've always used but it's laced with fentanyl and they immediately have an overdose because it's so potent. Um, and then uh, another variation of that is you have individuals who are buying pill presses which you know, are what they sound like. You press, uh, you know, powders or, or gels or substances to look like pills. And so if you're used to taking, say, you know, a benzodiazepine or a, um, a roxycodone or um, something like that, um, and you're used to taking a certain amount and then your dealer shows up with these pills that are artificial but made to look like the genuine artifact, uh, and they're laced with fentanyl, all of a sudden the 20 milligrams of whatever substance you usually take to achieve a high or feed your addiction, um, it kills you. It's become painfully clear that because fentanyl is produced in the controlled environments of labs and not in the unpredictability of poppy fields like heroin, it's an extremely lucrative business. And for the DIA's Brian Drake, this presents a unique set of problems. Brian, how does the Defense Intelligence Agency specifically track or locate facilities where fentanyl is being produced? We know there is a market incentive for these folks to sell to someone, right? They, they want to be found, they just don't want to be found by the United States government. So they will go through means to obscure their location maybe, maybe change the address a little bit so it's not exactly where it is, but it's the place next door, right? But that only gets you so far because eventually you're gonna have to interact in the market space somehow and the people you're trying to sell to have to be able to find you, right? So we leverage that fundamental market force as a way of starting to identify who's producing and where they are. And, and those are immutable things they can't change unless they exit the drug market. And that's a win. If they exit the drug market because we're putting pressure on them, that's a good outcome for us. So in the absence of that, we put as much pressure on them as possible to find them and, and put them in custody. So you use this information to inform policymakers. And what's the role that DIA plays there? Our policymakers are really strategic uh, thinkers and they are trying to figure out how we use national instruments of power to affect policy change. So in that case we're talking about how do I, a, a potential question a customer might ask is how do I apply economic sanctions against a country in order to incentivize them to better regulate fentanyl, right? So DIA's role in that would be characterizing what that economic downside would look like to that country. So in the case of China, if you were talking about an economic sanction against their pharmaceutical industry to a degree where you're completely shutting off their access to our pharmaceutical market in our healthcare space, that's a very strong incentive for the Chinese government to ensure that they meet our policy goals. 
because the more that we sanction that activity, the less they can make a profit off of it. And there might be other things that our policymakers bring to bear. But DIA would add, you know, you might be thinking about this type of area to add pressure, actually adding pressure here would be more effective. Right? So we identify those opportunities for the policymakers to make those decisions. At about 9.43 yesterday morning, we received a medical call at Paisley Park in Shanhassen. They found an unresponsive male in the elevator. CPR was initially started, but was unsuccessful. He was pronounced deceased at 10.07. We have identified him as Prince Rogers Nelson. High-profile deaths like Prince's in 2016 certainly shine a light on the problem. But according to DIA's Brian Drake, part of the difficulty in eradicating it is the stigma attached to addictions. Fentanyl is different in the sense that it is a very private death. It is very hidden from public view. Um, in, in our culture, there's a lot of shame ascribed to people that become addicted and then die as a result of their addiction. And because of that, there's a reluctance to get help. There's a reluctance to find support. And uh, if there's anything that we can do to start to tell the American public about what's happening and how we can make it better, you know, we're, we're happy to contribute in a positive way. And what is successful here? What is, how does DIA measure success in its fight against fentanyl? I think ultimately we all want to see fewer people passing away unnecessarily because of, because of uh, illicit opioid use. Uh, I think that would be a, a great outcome. I, I think that you know, drug use has been something that's endemic of every society and we will always have that problem. But if there's anything that DIA can do to make that problem less, uh, I think that's, that's a good thing to do. I think if you were to ask any number of people in our workforce, like, has anyone been touched by the opioid crisis, I think you would have a lot of people saying yes. Uh, and, if, and that's just, that kind of gives you an idea of how vast uh, the problem is. And so it gives me a bit of professional pride that we can go back and we can actually confront that and do good for some families in the building as well as American people. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. I learned a lot. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure for me, too. In 2017, about 70,000 individuals died from a drug overdose. And this annual death toll is higher than all U.S. military casualties in Vietnam and Iraq combined. We've discussed a lot of numbers and statistics in this program, but here's one more to leave you with. An American dies from a drug overdose every eight minutes, so in the time it took to listen to this podcast, five Americans lost their lives. Please look for future episodes of DIA Connections, where you'll hear about our continuing efforts to locate missing in action from the Vietnam War, and the story of a retired Marine who went to Hollywood and has enjoyed a career directing for Oliver Stone and Steven Spielberg. And don't forget to check out the Defense Intelligence Agency on our social media sites, including DIA.mil. Thanks for listening to DIA Connections. DIA Connections.